Good morning, church family. Good morning. You can open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. And uh, as Mara just shared with you, this is our last time in the story of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2. Now you might recall back in January that we discussed our 10-year vision here at Osterville Baptist, and in that vision, we, we said that we're called to inspire, train, and mobilize transformative leaders. One thing you come to realize quickly about the scriptures is that some of these figures, like Elijah, serve as a paradigm for us. We, we learn from their lives what a natural life of faith looks like, or as we talk about transformative leadership here, we're really talking about advanced discipleship. And as I look at the life of Elijah and I look over the the story of Elijah, I see certain phases, if you will, that God leads a leader through as they're following him, as they're following his lead. Look at Elijah's life first and notice that he began with what we would call a training phase. You might recall at the very beginning of Elijah's story, he made this bold prophecy. He said, it's not going to rain upon the land until I say it will. And God immediately removes him from the situation, and he takes him to this barren place called Kareth. And it was there that he had to learn to rely upon God. He was supernaturally provided for. But it was not a place that he could care for himself or do things for himself. He moves out of the training phase, and then he goes to what is called, what I would call the testing phase. You see, the brook at Kareth ran dry. And as that brook ran dry, God called Elijah to Zarephath. He goes to Zarephath, and that is enemy territory. It's Phoenician land. It's eight miles away from the place where Jezebel grew up, eight miles from the place from where her father is currently ruling. And it's there that God takes Elijah's faith and he stretches it to the extreme. He lives with this widow and her son dies. And no point in scriptures, uh, the, the scriptural record up to this point has someone done something like Elijah does in that story. He prays that the son would be raised from the dead. And God answers his prayer. Now you come to realize that In the life of faith, a faith that is not tested is not proven. So God tests Elijah's faith, and it's from there when he he shows this high level of faith, high degree of faith, that God moves him then into the ministry phase. Now, this is the phase that we all want and long for. We want to see God do abundantly more than we could ask, think, or imagine. And so God calls Elijah to Mount Carmel, and he calls out Ahab and the prophets of Baal, and he says to them, the God that responds by fire, he's the real God. And the living God shows up, and Elijah proves to the nation of Israel once again that God is their God. He's the God leading them. I want to suggest to you something, though, this morning. This ministry phase can actually be a space where transformative leaders develop tunnel vision. They become so focused on what God is doing in the present, the present work of God, that they forget to invest in the future work of God. 
You're right, but in Elijah's story, he became deeply disenfranchised, even depressed when Jezebel said that she was going to have his head. He runs, and it's there when God meets him in his running and fleeing phase that he tells him, I'm still at work. I'm doing things that you can't even see right now. There's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and I am raising up the next generation of leader. In fact, your successor's name is Elisha. Now, Elijah goes, he finds Elisha. He begins to pour into him, and this is a new phase, a crucial phase of transformative leadership. I call it the mentor phase. See, Elijah's still going out and doing the work of the ministry, but as he does this now, Elisha follows him. He learns from him. He's being developed. He is soon to receive the baton and to carry on the work for him. Now, what's beyond the mentor phase? Well, I believe there's one last phase of the life of faith. It's the legacy phase. And I see that in the scriptures that we're going to be looking at this morning. You see, in the life of a leader, we all must ask ourselves a big question. Do I wish to live to outlive? So many people are just simply living for the foreground. They're living for what's in front of them right now. And as they pursue life and as they make decisions in life, it's all about what do I get right now. But God is a legacy maker. He has bigger purpose for your life, bigger plans for your life than what is happening right now. So how do I outlive? What does it mean to outlive? Well, it means to last beyond, to outlast, to live on after. How does one do that? Well, we'll see certain implications of that in our text this morning. So let's read 2 Kings 2, verses 1 to 14, and we'll derive some of these implications from it. The text says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they both were standing by the Jordan, Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other. 
till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken away from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elijah saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he said, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elijah went o Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The Spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So from this text, I, I observe four legacy implications. The first implication is this, to outlive, live toward the grander vision. And that implication, I see it in the first six verses of the text. You watch Elijah as he's traveling along with Elisha, and he comes up to the school of the prophets. Now, who are these school of the prophets? I suggest to you that this is a new generation of prophets that have come about because of Elijah's ministry. Remember, just prior to Mount Carmel, Jezebel had nearly brought the prophets to extinction. She was killing them in droves. Obadiah was hiding them in the caves. And then Elijah shows up and he proves that God is the living God, the God of Israel. Now all of these prophets, you see it in verse 3 and verse 5, they have the same message. Elisha, don't you realize that today is Elijah's last day? Now, in their eyes, you can imagine that Elijah was a figure larger than life. It's almost as if this fear is descending upon the school of prophets. What are we going to do next? Uh, it happens all the time when there is that figure that figure that people revere, that they look at as larger than life. We have figures like that in our own history, don't we? I think of someone like Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, he was revered as a man of strength and vigor and determination. I love this story. In October 12th of 1912, he was going to deliver a speech in Milwaukee, and it was on new, the new nationalism. And he's getting into his car and he's heading over to the auditorium to deliver this speech. A man meets him on the way and he shoots him in the chest. Now, Teddy Roosevelt is a very determined man. 
His doctor says, you need to go to the hospital. You need to take care of this. I'm very worried for you. And Teddy Roosevelt says, no, I think I'm going to keep going on. I've already set this meeting up. I'm going to the auditorium, and I'm going to deliver my speech. So he shows up to the auditorium. He settles all the people down, and he tells them, I've just been shot, and, you know, I'm probably not going to deliver that long of a speech. So what does he do? He reaches into his coat pocket, and he pulls out this blood-soaked manuscript, and he proceeds to give a 90-minute speech. His son, in 1919, when he had passed, wired his brothers and said, the lion is dead. You see, it was as if in their mind, Teddy Roosevelt's death was the end of an era. It was the end of an epoch. And that is what the prophets, that's where they've descended to. They begin to think, with the passing of Elijah, so goes the protection, the power, the strength of Israel. He was a man who God had completely used, who had worked through, who had raised up this new generation of prophets. What are we going to do? They are stuck in what I would call a lesser vision. And the lesser vision is Elijah was a man greatly used by God. The grander vision is God was the one who raised up Elijah. Now, lesser visions have a way of squashing the grander vision. It's because they seem so practical, so common sense, less risky, And as you follow the lesser vision, it will quietly distract you and take you off of the path of legacy. And think about the story of William Carey, the father of modern missions. What if Carey had listened to the lesser vision that was cast about missions at that time? If you know anything about his story, you know that Carey read the Great Commission through a new lens. It used to be said that the Great Commission was a text for the apostles, and they were the ones to fulfill that. But when William Carey looked at the Word of God, he could see, no, this principle extends to all Christians in all time periods. We're supposed to go to foreign lands, distant places, and tell them about Jesus. But he was hearing the lesser vision in his ear. People were getting really practical with him. Listen, William, there's plenty of people here who need salvation, who need discipleship, who need ministry. Now, he thought he was called to India, and so they said, you don't need to go to India, you stay right here. They also talked about it in terms of less risk. If you get on that boat and head over there, think of all the things that could happen. But William Carey felt compelled toward the grander vision. He gets on the boat, he heads off to India. You want to know what happened when he first got there? Not much of anything. In fact, he spent most of his life not experiencing fruit for the work that he was doing. A lot of suffering, a lot of hardship. Now, if you looked at his life in the present perspective, you would say he was a failure. He risked everything and it really didn't work out for him. But if you look at it from the grander vision, today there are men and women all over the world sacrificing their life on the foreign field because of William Carey. 
Why were all these prophets focused on the lesser vision? I mean, after all, they're prophets, right? I can't, can't they look into the future and see what God's going to do beyond today? Well, I want to submit is the problem is that they were all focused on what questions. What? What are we going to do now? What is going to happen next? What if no one can live up to Elijah? Now, those are all practical questions, but you can what yourself into oblivion. In fact, the better question, the questions that the the prophets should have been asking is, why? Why is God calling us to do what we're supposed to be doing right now? Why is God calling Elijah to go home right now? It turns out that when we start asking the why question, it keeps us focused and moving forward and undistracted even when the what's are hard. And I believe Elisha understood this. That's why he keeps saying to all the prophets around him, keep quiet. I don't want to descend into your dread and despair. I know that God's doing something right now and I'm going to keep following him in that direction. Do you know that that can happen within churches too? That we can what ourselves out of doing significant things for God? It's true. It happens all the time. Church leadership teams, congregations feel compelled to do something for God, but then they get into the, the figuring it out and the details, and they say, ah, this is too hard. Let's move on and do something else. We've been talking and dreaming as a church about renovating the facilities. I'll tell you, the only thing that's really going to keep us moving forward if God's calling us in that direction is the why. Why? Well, if we believe that we're to inspire, train, and mobilize transformative leaders, then it would make a lot of sense that our facility would facilitate that. And what happens in discipleship? A lot of relationships. So you have to get people in churches out of the context of just sitting in rows to actually getting into circles together where they're talking to one another and then moving off into small group life and other church activities life. That's the space where discipleship happens. And of course, Pastor James just shared about a family discipleship vision where we want to see Children in this church raised up to be the next generation of leaders and parents discipling them. You have to have a facility that facilitates those things. In fact, if we get too stuck in the what's, like what's it going to cost and what kind of process should we use to get there, we might adopt a lesser vision than the big vision that God's given us. And I want to suggest to you that can happen all the time in our spiritual life unless we align together around the why. Let's look at another implication of the text. The second implication is to outlive, we must live like the legacy maker's power is not tied to a particular era or a particular person. Now, I draw this implication from two interactions. One is between Elijah and Elisha, and the other is a parallel that we see in geography between Elijah's movements and 
the nation of Israel under Joshua's leadership coming in to conquest the land. First, notice that twice or three times, Elisha, Elijah tells Elisha to stay behind. And three times in oath fashion, Elisha says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave. Now, why does Elijah do that three times to Elisha? I want to suggest that he's testing him. He's basically saying, are you willing to go all the way to the end with me to see what God will do? And Elisha, in oath fashion, says, I am following in your footsteps, foot by foot. I'm not looking to the right. I'm not looking to the left. I'm going the distance with you. Now, notice also the geography. Elijah follows a very specific route, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, Jordan River. Now, this trip retraces the first movements of Israel as they came into the promised land. The parting of the Jordan clearly reenacts the events of Joshua 3 and 4, which God separated the waters of the Jordan and Israel entered into the land of Canaan. Dale Ralph Davies makes this crucial point. He says, the God of 1400 B.C. is just as mighty in 850 B.C. That's what the text is telling us this morning. And as you look at this geography and you look at this history, you realize that the legacy thread is running all throughout history. Now, those who have adopted the lesser vision, they're fixated on a particular point in time, a particular person. But the visionary leader sees that there is a legacy maker, that he's the one who is advancing the thread of legacy through history, that history is his story. And that's a truth that we need to internalize today because the historical God is also the contemporary God. We so often look at Scripture, we sing songs about the past, like these are the days of Elijah. We look back at the power and the wonder of days gone by, but we forget that God is still present today. He's still bringing to people to salvation today. He's still stifling the enemy today. He's still moving through the Holy Spirit, sanctifying His people so that they will obey Him radically today. Dale Ralph Davies notes, perhaps God sometimes removes his most illustrious servants so that we will not make idols of them as though they are the only conduits of God's help. I believe John Calvin understood this as he was making arrangements for his funeral. He left these words to those who were making the preparations. He said, I don't want my funeral to be any different than a common person's funeral. So what did they do? Well, they sewed him in a white gown. They put him in a pine box. At the graveside, he said he didn't want any words said. He didn't want any songs sung. He even told them he did not want a tombstone over his burial plot. His words were followed down to the last detail, so much so that just a few months later, some students had come and they said they wished to visit the place where his remains rested. And as they were looking at the ground, 
They could not distinguish his grave from any of the other graves that had been freshly put into that cemetery plot. It makes me think of the, the burial of Moses. Do you remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 34? The text tells us in verse 5 that God buried Moses in the valley of Moab. And then verse 6 makes this, this keen point. It says, and today we no longer know where Moses is buried. Now, why would God do that? I mean, why would God not let the nation of Israel bury their, 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 their greatest leader of all time, the leader who took them out of uh, ca- Egyptian captivity through the wilderness and up to the brink of the promised land? And I think he's making a big point. And the point he's making is it's not about Moses. It's about the legacy maker. And it makes me even think of my own funeral. When I'm buried, I want there to be a big sign on my casket. And I want that sign to say, this is not about Rob. It's not. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of us. It's about the legacy maker. Let's look at a third implication. To outlive, leave behind the greater inheritance. Look at verses 9 and 10. You see the two approaching the final destination, and Elijah asks Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Elijah responds, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Many look at that text, and they, they think that Elisha is asking for a double portion of the miraculous works of Elijah. And I can see where you would come to that conclusion, because if you read Elisha's story, he indeed does perform twice as many miracles as Elijah. But the language, that biblical language, a double portion, actually deals with the inheritance that the eldest son received from the father. In this day, the eldest son received a a double portion, not because there was some preference on the eldest son, but because it was the eldest son's responsibility to carry on the work of caring for and leading the family beyond the father. Think about Elisha's life. Elisha has left everything to follow Elijah. It says that he had 12 oxen and that he slaughtered the oxen and he he uh, sacrificed them to the Lord. That indicates to us that Elisha was a wealthy man. He left wealth. He left his family inheritance. He gave it all up to walk with the Lord. And now he's saying to Elijah, I want a double portion of your spiritual life. I want a double portion of that intimacy and that connection that you share with God and the the power to do the work of God and the responsibility that's been laid upon me. Many of you have probably engaged in the activity of writing out your last will and testament. You know, when you do that, you're putting desires on paper. 
you're saying in that, these are things that I want for my children, my grandchildren, my church, maybe other significant relationships in my life. Now, when you went through that exercise, you also realized that there are certain things that don't pass or transfer like physical assets, like your values, your beliefs. You, you, you can't write in your will, I want my son to be a man of character. Okay, it doesn't transfer like that. Notice what Elisha asks for from Elijah, a double portion of that intangible stuff, the spiritual life that Elijah had. How do you pass that along? I want to suggest to you today that that is caught more than it is taught. It's caught more than it's taught. Now, don't hear me wrongly. Of course, we need to raise our children up and help them to understand the scriptures and to get that worldview in their minds so that they understand who God is, who they are, and how they follow him. In fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, you received that. You were acquainted with the sacred scriptures from your childhood. 2 Timothy 3.15. But as you look at the letter of 2 Timothy, you see that Timothy's faith was more caught than it was taught. In in 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, I am reminded of the faith that dwells in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. It was caught from the family that he was raised in. You also see it through the remainder of the letter. Often Paul says to Timothy, What you have seen in me, I need you to do. Do you see that? It turns out that faith is not mostly about content mastery, as important as that is. It's about life mastery. We exercise faith in the normal day-to-day rhythms of life. So young Timothys catch faith by watching Paul's live it out. Elisha's want a double portion of the spiritual life as they see Elijah's love God, live for God, and serve God. You know, one thing I will pray for you is that on your deathbed, your children say to you, I want a double portion of your spiritual life. It's the greatest gift you can give them the most impactful legacy you can leave for them. Let's look at this fourth implication. To outlive, live like heaven is your home. You see, this implication transcends the now. A couple years ago, we read Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, and he really delved into this quite a bit. And in this book, he identified that one of the greatest deterrents to giving, to being generous, is the illusion that this present earth is our home. I mean, if you look at this present earth as your home, of course you're going to be stingy and greedy. I mean, it just only makes sense. You only get so much time here. You might as well live it up. I want to suggest to you that the same is true in how you live in total, not just in how you spend your money. If earth is your home, it's all going to be about you and what you get out of this life. And 
And even the altruistic things that you're involved in are mainly going to be focused around you. But here's the thing. Earth is not your home. It's not. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, heaven is your home. I love this analogy that Alcorn creates in his book. He, He says, suppose that you were called to France for three months on a work visa. And it was a significant amount of money that you were going to earn as you went there and worked. You're living out of a hotel. You're told right when you get into this dynamic that anything that you earn and transfer back over to America, you get to keep when you return. But anything that you buy physically in France must stay there. It can't get on the plane with you and go with you. Now, how would you live? I imagine you'd probably buy the finest art and the best furniture France has to offer so you can live it up for three months, right? That would be wise. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd go to like Ikea and get the cheapest things you can find, the cheapest food that you can eat, and you would be sending all your treasures over to America. Well, church, friends... We should want to send it all ahead. Not just our financial resources, not just those types of things, but also reputation and and responsibilities. I want to tell you this, living for Jesus might cost you any one of those things now, but earth is not your home. It doesn't matter if people look at you strangely and call you a Jesus freak now because when you get to eternity, Jesus says, if you live for me, all of those things are waiting for you. Heaven is my home. I want to live for that. If you look at Elijah's story, it points to this greater reality. You see, when you look at his departure in some ways, it it falls into this very unique category. Only two people in biblical history have immediately translated from earth up to heaven without tasting death. The first is who? Enoch, right? In Genesis chapter 5. The second is Elijah. The Bible tells us also that there will be a group of Christians who will experience this as well. And that's explained to us in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Church, that's not just a funeral text. That's a life text. When Jesus returns, some of us will get caught up in the air with him. And that is a blessed reality. But here's the truth. Even if we don't get caught up in the whirlwind like Elijah or raptured with the church when Jesus returns, we all are headed to the same final destination. Eternal heaven. Now, Elkhorn says this. He says there's two phases to anyone's life. The first phase is the dot. The second phase is the line. The dot represents your life on earth. The line that moves from the dot represents 
eternal heaven, your life that you live in eternity forever and ever and ever. Now the question is, which are you living for? You know, we're in the dot right now. But are you living for the dot? Some people are so short-sighted. They, they can't see that God's a legacy maker. They get stuck in the lesser vision. They think that life is all about the now. It's not all about the now. People who are eternally minded know that they're living in the dot for the line. Are you living in the dot for the line? What are you living for? I hope it's not for retirement. I hope that you're not living for a checklist that you've created, your bucket list, and you're just trying to check those off all along the way. I hope that you're not living for a storied career. I hope that you're not living for things which moth and rust and thieves will destroy. I hope that you're living for eternity. Would you bow your heads with me? And as you're contemplating that this morning, let me just offer this prayer up to God. Lord, as we look at the life of Elijah and many others in the scriptures, we come back to this legacy phase time and again. We come to realize that the life of faith today is just the dot. It's just 70, 80, 90 or so years, and then eternity begins. We come to realize, though, that everything that we do in this earth has significance in that you, Lord, say that this life matters. The decision I make in this life matters. The way I live in this life matters. How I live for Jesus in this life matters. I pray, Lord, that we would see today that you indeed are the legacy maker, that you are running legacy through the thread of history. And Lord, that's because you're in control, you're in charge. I want to align my life, Lord, with that thread. I want to align with what you're doing in this world, not with what my plans are. I pray that over this congregation too that we would follow hard after you, that we would do things your way, that we would live for your purposes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.